Welcome to the Airspace Advantage podcast. I'm your host today, Doug Berkey. Here at the Airspace Advantage, we speak with leaders in DOD, industry, and other subject matter experts to explore the intersection of strategy, operational concepts, technology, and policy when it comes to air and space power. So if you like learning about aerospace power, you're in the right place. And to our regular listeners, welcome back. And if it's your first time here today, thanks so much for joining us. And as a reminder, if you like what you're hearing, do us a favor and follow our show. Please give us a like and leave a comment so that we can keep charting the trajectories that matter most to you. Now this week, it's time for The Rendezvous. Now that's our monthly installment where the Mitchell team digs into stories you've seen in the headlines. And this time around, we have General Dave Deptula. Hey, it's good to be here, Doug. Next, we've got Todd Sledgehammer with us. Always great to be here, Doug. And we've also got Anthony Laser Lazarski. Thanks for the invite back. And as everybody knows, Laser and Sledge are our Washington experts who we have as part of the rendezvous crew each month. We've also got General Gus Costello from the Mitchell team. It's always good to be with the Mitchell team, the air and space power advocates. Love it. Hey, thanks, sir. And last but not least, we've got our China expert, Dan Rice, is who you know is with the uh, Brute Krulak Center for Innovation and Future Warfare and is a non-resident fellow here at Mitchell. Hey, Doug, it's great to be back on the rendezvous with the crew. Hey, man, always great to hear from you. So let's jump right into the topic number one here today. And General Deptula, you just came out with an op-ed on fighters to Ukraine that was published in the Wall Street Journal. And walk us through your arguments on that. Yeah, Doug, thanks for asking. Here's the bottom line up front. I think most people would agree that time and manpower are not on Ukraine's side. Ukraine can still lose this war. So if we don't provide more consequential and timely military assistance to Ukraine, the battlefield advantage is going to accrue to Putin, and the world simply can't afford a Putin victory on a battlefield. China would be emboldened, and the international order will not survive the resulting chaos. Western combat air power is the one thing that could fundamentally alter the calculus in this fight. By providing Ukraine with capable Western aircraft, both manned and unmanned, by the way, the West can increase Ukraine's probability of success in reversing Russia's aggression. Unfortunately, the administration's approach seems to be to provide enough equipment for Ukraine not to lose. This is very reminiscent of the gradualism and the short-sightedness of President Johnson's approach to the Vietnam War. Gradualism didn't work then, and it won't work in Ukraine. Uh, giving them just enough to keep them from losing tactically is a prescription for strategic failure. Now, training experienced Ukrainian fighter pilots has come, off, come up often. And I think most experienced fighter pilots would agree that this could be accomplished in three to six months. Gus can comment on that as he's a real world experienced F-16 instructor pilot. And transitioning to maintenance and logistics support for the F-16 is another issue. But that can rapidly be put into place using contract logistics support. And of course, if we'd begun this training process last year, Ukrainians would be ready now to go in modern combat fighters. And it's not too late to start now. So what I'd tell you is the administration needs to stop asking what will happen if we provide air power and start asking what will happen if we don't. I appreciate that, sir. So for the group here, 
We just passed the one-year anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and everybody here has been talking about this in various forums throughout the last year. And if you look back at this time window, what are your top observations? General Costello, let's start with you. It's a great question. And there's certainly been a lot of them. I think General Deptula hit the nail on the head. The air power can make a phenomenon. It didn't make a difference because it wasn't used properly in the Russian invasion. But the same thing now exists in, a year later in terms of how we could equip Ukraine to actually survive this onslaught from the Russians. And it's definitely given them air power. Now, whether or not we start out with NATO provided air power and we follow up with the more advanced U.S. systems like the F-16, that's it's easily debatable, but we have to get them the support, not only from the U.S., but from, to push our partners to give them that air power support that they can operate with. It is more complicated to give them an F-16 because certainly the pilot piece of it, but the maintainability and the difficulty of, of the professionalism required to maintain it is definitely going to be a burden for them. But it doesn't matter. We can get them coalition or other types of air power as soon as possible. But here's the other big takeaway on this fight. And that is the lessons learned about the imperative importance of air defense and how does air defense factor in the 21st century? What are we seeing? We're seeing fighter launched cruise missiles. We're seeing certainly ballistic missiles, but we're seeing explosion of the UAVs that are out there. So everything that's happening in Ukraine, we have to learn from that to figure out how are we going to be able to ensure we can force project, generate air power from a myriad of airfields given the fact that things like that are going to come at us. And I think the so the light bulb needs to come on and the resources need to flow for the air and missile defense aspect. General Deptula, what about you? Well, I think <laughs> this question could go on for a long time and I'm going to try to get through, get through it as fast as possible. But I think it's important right up front to recognize it can take years to unravel the chaos of war into facts-based truths from which to learn. That said, let me, as quickly as I can, hit my top 10 lessons that I think are pretty significant to consider. First, air superiority is enormously important to achieving an operational and strategic advantage over an adversary. It should be very apparent that the lack of air superiority on both sides is what's led to a stalemate resembling a World War I-like quagmire. Now, there's a proposition floating around that the U.S. should approach war in the air domain via a mutual air denial strategy in lieu of pursuing air superiority. That need for a seismic shift in doctrine such as this is way too early to call, given the need to properly assess the use of air power in Ukraine by both sides first. Okay, second point, force structure and capacity matters. As we're seeing so dramatically today, the force structure and capacity choices one makes are ones that you have to live with. And once in a conflict, it's too late to correct them. So we better make the right choices today because there are going to be no room to recover if we don't. Three, deterrence is based on inducing enough uncertainty in an adversary's mind that they would succeed in aggression so that they don't. It's pretty obvious that the president's comments on just what the U.S. would not do played into Putin's hands at the beginning of this conflict. Here's what the president told him. Let, us be, let me be clear. Our forces are not engaged and will not engage in conflict with Russian forces in Ukraine. 
Now, declaring that no U.S. forces or troops would be used in defense of Ukraine removed any uncertainty on Putin's part of the U.S. as a complicating element in his decision whether or not to invade. So even if you agree with the premise, perhaps we shouldn't make it so obvious in a declaration like that. Four, the impact of commercial space-based ISR is huge. Optical and signals intelligence information, it's now readily accessible to anyone who has a credit card and access to the internet. And that now gives anyone insights that a decade ago were only available to major nation states with sovereign spacecraft. Five, tanks are very vulnerable to modern weapons. And the question that must be addressed before one buries the tank, however, is this. Is there a continued role for mobile protected lethality on the battlefields of the future? If the answer is yes, then the next action is the ongoing issue of how to protect the tank. Six, a similar point can also be made for naval surface ships. The notion of Ukraine's military, the veritable underdog in this fight, bringing down the Moskva was a strategic victory. And if Ukraine could sink a flagship with a cruise missile, how well are American ships going to do in a similar situation, for example, against China? Seven, we're seeing proof of the need for fifth generation combat air forces. I think that's a quite evident giving, given all the attention that's being paid to Russians' air defenses. Low observable fighters and bombers significantly reduce their probability of detection and increase the probability of their survival. Eight, the Russia-Ukraine war's glaring proof of the need to build up our own PGM stocks. Nine, another outcome of the war is the need for increased attention on missile defense both from a conventional as well as a nuclear defense option. And finally, probably the biggest one that puts a lot in one basket is leadership matters, doctrine matters, training matters, and materiel matters, and morale matters, because it can overcome materiel deficiencies and lack of it can negate material advantages. So I know that was rapid fire, but those are my top 10, and I think there are plenty others as well. Now, I appreciate that, sir. Sledge Laser, what's the mood on the Hill when it comes to Ukraine? Is this support still strong? Are there nuances we should be watching? Yeah, so I'd, I'd say overall, bipartisan, bicameral support, it's still strong. You've, you've seen hearings yesterday. You've seen it last week. So there's been committee hearings, intel, armed services, appropriations, as well as member uh, all member briefings. Their support of training, there's 100, up to 100 Ukrainians in Oklahoma. I know the Oklahoma members have been out there to see the training. They had nothing but they were all impressed, essentially, with the, all the Ukrainian service members were out there and seeing they're all ready to fight. and. Almost every single one of them had lost a loved one or one of their fellow service members. But with the bottom line, they want to get additional equipment out there. They want advanced equipment, just like General Deptula had said. They want to understand the Ukrainian and meet Ukrainian requirements. And the big thing you're going to see, and it's coming out of the House, is the accountability. They want to be more informed of what future funding plans, and they want detailed objective. And General Deptula, going back to you, they, they want to understand what's the plan, what are we trying to do, how are we going to win, supportive. Uh, they're watching for the predictive spring offensive and what the Russia may mobilize and what weapons they may bring to bear. And the one thing that's really popping out there on a concern that they're hearing and I'm hearing is about public support in the long term because they're concerned about sustained support for funding and equipment for Ukraine. 
Yeah, I think if I could jump on the last point that Laser made, I was going to be a little bit of a contrarian here. I think Americans have a very short attention span. And that's true even when we're directly involved. You go back historically and look at World War II toward the end of the war. America had moved on while we were still losing a thousand soldiers a day in, in Europe. And then we hadn't really even pivoted to the Pacific yet. So I think that the president's promise to provide whatever it takes to Ukraine for victory will include him working a little bit more aggressively to stiffen domestic support for that. And as Laser pointed, it's got to be the objective of what is in the national interest of the United States to keep providing support for Ukraine. And I, I think the other big thing he's got to do is make an argument that Europe's got to step up to the plate. It's really insightful. Okay, Laser Sledge. What's the latest when it comes to Washington and defense? Last time we talked to you, the budget negotiations are foremost in our mind. How's that progressing? I'll jump on this one first. I think, first of all, a couple of technical points here, Doug. When we talk about budget negotiations, let's separate that from the president's budget request that's scheduled to go over to the Hill on the, on the 9th of March. The budget negotiations that are going on, each in the House and the Senate, will determine what the top line spending authority for each of the 12 appropriations subcommittees are. Laser, I'll defer to you on some of the specifics there, but I have not heard a lot of the, a lot of negotiations about what the budget resolution is going to look like and what those top line numbers are. So it's going to make it very difficult for the congressional appropriators to, to mark to any numbers until there's a budget agreement. The president's request is going to go over to Congress on the 9th of March. It's going to be a skinny budget again, which means the supporting documentation, the justification books will not accompany the budget request. So we'll have a little bit more insight. But that's really the starter's gun to get the whole process started. There are going to be posture hearings that start. The first OSD posture hearings on the 8th of March. So it's actually preceding the budget. Things are going to happen in, in short order. I know the House Armed Service subcommittees are going to start marking in May. The plan is for the full committee to mark the National Defense Authorization Act on the 24th and 25th of May. And my understanding is this year is not going to be an all-nighter. They've actually got it broken into two days. We'll see how that plays out. But when it does happen, it's going to happen fast. So buckle up. Laser. Sledge, so I've been with a couple other members recently, and they don't have any more information on where they're going with the top line and how they're going to negotiate an agreement. And again, if I were to predict, given the Democratic control of the Senate, I think they would be supportive of the president budgets that have come over. And of course, we know what the House is going to do with the FY22 overall budget cap, not per subcommittee, but the overall. So I have seen no movement on how they're going to figure out to reconcile that. We may see each one move their bills, and then it's just going to have to be worked out in conference, but it's going to definitely impact their ability to meet the 15 April deadline for adopting a budget resolution. What are the other issues that we should be tracking, especially leading into next week with budget release? If I could jump on that one there, Laser, I think there's just a couple of things. First, we cannot forget that we're going to be bumping up against the debt ceiling here this summer. So that's going to take a lot of the oxygen off Capitol Hill. The second, and I guess related part to that is Speaker McCarthy has an extremely narrow majority, and he has a lot of competing interests within his caucus that he has to navigate. And I think the fact that he's in deference to the godfather there, he's established the five families. So each of the competing factions has a seat at the table to allow them to air their ideas. And we'll see how well that he can shepherd those diverse opinions and objectives. And I think the, the third thing that I would just have the listeners keep an eye on is the Committee on Competition with China. We've really got to watch and see where that goes. Last night was their first public hearing. I think there's general agreement that China is a strategic competitor and even growing awareness that they're an adversary. Um, everyone agrees with that. But I think 
the big takeaway from last night was there are two fundamentally different approaches to how we solve that problem. Just following up on Sledge, again, agree with everything. China's going to be a focus out there as Ukraine that we just talked about. Hearings, we're actually starting COCOM hearings, so everyone needs to be focused on those as we run through the COCOM and then the posture hearings. DOD nominations are still being held. There are several members that are holding the noms, so while they're still going to try to get some through committee and down to the floor, it's going to be difficult to get nominations off the floor. Debt ceiling, number one, uh, and they haven't seen the cliff yet. There's a disagreement on when we're going to hit the debt ceiling. Is it going to be June? Is it going to be all the way to September? There's going to be another update at a CBO in May when we get a better idea, but again, they, they really have move forward on that. And then other ones real quick are a spectrum auction extension. And it looks like a short extension, but it may go all the way to September. What is, why do we care? Because DOD national security interest in the spectrum and how it gets auctioned off. So that's going to be worked. There's an FAA bill out there. There's some data privacy, industrial base, a lot of focus on industrial base and supply chain. And then the last piece that they're going to be focusing on is the acquisition and trying to get past this valley of death. And we've talked a lot about that. Yep. Now, this one's for everyone. Obviously, the Biden administration is going to release its budget in a few days. Are there key items that are particular interest to folks here and any prediction points that you want to highlight? General Deptula, let's start with you. What are you tracking? Well, look, there's so much to talk about in the 2024 budget, but frankly, my hope is for the Department of Defense to recognize that the reason the Air Force is the oldest, smallest, and least ready in its history is that it's been funded less than the departments of the Army and the Navy for 30 years in a row. Just as a reminder for our audience, for the 20 years following 9-11, the Army received an average of $66 billion a year more than the Air Force. Now, that's after you take pass-through out. But without the reallocation of funds necessary to reverse this situation, the Air Force is just going to become older, smaller, and less ready in a time period where it's in greater demand than ever before by the combatant commanders. So as a minimum, I'll be looking for a minimum order of 72 new combat aircraft and then see if the Department of Defense actually recognizes the need to rebuild our geriatric Air Force. John Guastella? I completely agree with General Deptula. I've been watching the Air Force budget closely for a, about a decade myself, because when I built my first Palm about a decade ago, and the Air Force has not gotten any healthier in a decade. Matter of fact, if the Air Force was a patient in the hospital, every organ is failing. And what I mean by that is the fighter force structure certainly needs the investment that General Deptula talked about, not only this year, but they need to sustain it. But how about some other coffers? How about the weapon system sustainment and the readiness, the flying hours? They've been anemic, the lowest ever for our fifth gen guys are barely flying. How about the pilot shortfall? Is that going to be funded? We've got, we're, we have a deficit there of thousands thousands of pilots. And are we getting after it? I don't know. Are we replacing the anemic aging E3 with the E7 at the proper rates that we should be? We have a space force now. Are we actually going to be equip it to fight as, as opposed to just to be in a docile environment? Are we going to get after it, make it a credible space force with warriors that can actually fight? Are, and then just to name a couple of smaller things, but important, are we going to invest in the um, 
you know, if we have an ACE concept, agile combat employment, where we operate out of austere airfields, are we going to, are we going to make those places? Are we going to strengthen those? Are we going to set up spares kits? Are we going to invest in all these on our aspirations as an air force? And I think, so there's a lot of questions I have when I, when, before this budget comes out, there's a lot of damage that's been done by underfunding over the years. So how much they do to repair that, let's find out. Now, I can't agree enough. I mean, it was great to see the B-21 roll out this fall, but it's only worth something if you buy enough of them. So a lot of challenges there. Laser, Sledge, your thoughts? I can't add much to that. I would echo the last point you made there, Doug. At some point, you got to buy stuff. The big thing I look at is the break, the breakout amongst the services, as General Deptula mentioned. But I also look very closely at the difference between the uh, the percentages of the RDT and E, O and M, and procurement at within the Air Force budget there, because quantity has a quality all its own, and we need to be buying stuff. Jumping on the end, it's the pay for. Again, we've got too much. We're not going to get enough budget. So how are they going to balance that? And what are we going to use to pay for modernization? Are they going to cut force structure? What force structure are they going to cut? They're going to cut manpower. They're going to try to cut older systems on the on the promise. We're going to buy newer systems. And we've had a discussion about that and how neither have worked in the past. So there's also a discussion about a civilian, DOD civilian personnel cut. So we'll be taking a look at that. I don't think I think it'll come over in the budget, but I know the House is taking a look at uh, trying to figure out where they can get some savings. So, uh, and then how are we going to pay for inflation and increased fuel costs? And is that factored into the budget? Okay, Dan, over to your subject lane of expertise. Now, China has come up on the radar recently. Wang Yi, he's a member of the Political Bureau of the CPC Central Committee and the director of the Office of the Central Commission for Foreign Affairs. That's quite a title. Spoke at the Munich Security Conference. Now, we've also seen a continuing dialogue between Beijing and Moscow, and obviously it probably includes some potential support for Russia's fight in Ukraine. Walk us through what we should know on all these topics. Yeah, absolutely. So a little bit of a departure from the earlier conversation, but essentially Wang Yi, who's a state counselor, and he's really the thought leadership on Chinese foreign policy. He went on this tour of Europe, of which one of the stops was the Munich Security Conference, and it seems like from what he was saying at the conference that China is trying to promote this idea of the multipolarization of the world and more more specifically trying to gain a foothold or even further relationships with U.S. allies to try to peel back a coalition that we might have in the event of conflict with China. Because that's one of the things that they're very afraid about, especially in the Indo-Pacific. So at the conference specifically, Wang Yi was trying to gain support for, as we know, their proposed 12-point plan for quote-unquote peace in Ukraine. And furthermore on that, trying to get additional buy-in for drawing a map of what that would look like. As we've seen with what they published, the 12-point peace plan doesn't really have much substance to it. And the map that accompanied that, it really looks like a bunch of demilitarized zones that Russia right now occupies, which essentially in plain speak means that the plan looks like it's setting up for the capability for Russia to actually control that area. In terms of the Russia-China dialogues, I know there's been some reporting 
on Chinese military aid to Russia. And I saw something, I think it was like kamikaze drones that China was planning on selling Russia, regardless of whether or not that actually occurs. I think it does signal a, a next level of Chinese involvement in what goes on in the Russia-Ukraine war. And it's really a radical departure away from their non-interference policy, which bottom line, if China does provide lethal aid to Ukraine, number one, that makes our problem a lot more difficult. But also, number two, it does create a situation that looks much more like the Cold War and blocks of power vying for influence in a proxy war. Now, I really appreciate that insight. Now, we've also seen that China's been cultivating relationships with some European countries like Hungary. What does that signal? Yeah, so I mentioned Wang Yi's trip in Europe. So he stopped in Italy, France, and Hungary, as well as ended his trip in Moscow. And what it signals, again, is this idea of using footholds that were already established by China in these countries to try to peel back that coalition. So I'll use the example of Hungary. Hungary is a BRI, Belt and Road Initiative partner, and there's a significant infrastructure project in the Budapest-Belgrade railway that China is trying to really push for now. You have to remember that China is just coming out of their COVID period, ended much later than the rest of the world. And so they're trying to double down on getting more buy-in for those projects. Why does that matter? Well, at the same time that Wang Yi was on his trip, the vice minister Sun Chunlan was actually also in Greece where Costco, a Chinese shipping company, has the majority shareholder ownership of the port of Piraeus. And so if you think, you know, more strategically here, it's trying to connect the disparate infrastructure projects that China has in Europe to get more influence and more access specifically in Central and Eastern Europe. So again, trying to peel away those alliances, trying to buy more influence. And then as we saw it culminate with this supposed peace agreement, they're trying to leverage that to get EU buy-in into Chinese-led initiatives, as well as the potential for some sort of veto in EU decision-making by members such as Hungary or Greece. Wow. Some interesting things there. So General Deptula, General Gostella, we saw Putin withdrew from the New START agreement. And that was the last remaining agreement between the U.S. and Russia when it came to nuclear arms control. So given some of the context on that, what do you think it means in terms of U.S. nuclear triad modernization and, and our priorities? Well, Doug, the first thing it does is reinforce the importance of the triad as a means of deterrence. And I think it will also appropriately reopen the debate regarding the need for a comprehensive missile defense for the United States. It, it, arms control in the future is going to be very much different than arms control in the past. And here's why. From an arms control perspective, we need to realize that China is now breaking out from a relatively small nuclear arsenal to one that will match or even exceed Russia's. Therefore, this may be an opportunity to seek some sort of trilateral arrangement 
to achieve limits on the growth of nuclear weapons in all three of those countries. <laughs> Although everyone on here understands that the United States vis-a-vis -vis Russia and China is in a very difficult period of time. And that most certainly is going to affect any kinds of arms control agreement in the future. John Costello, your thoughts? Backing out of the New START agreement is textbook Putin. He, he What he does is he proclaims something drastic in an attempt to deter the West. This is just this didn't just come up. This happens to be linked to the Ukraine thing. Uh, he wants to deter the West. He wants weak-minded European nations to placate him, to appease him. He'll get worse unless we stop sending support to Ukraine. So here's what I think we should do. I think we should see what his words are, but see if he also follows up with actions. The good news is we have a B-21 in development. It's cruising along. We have the ground-based strategic deterrent, the Sentinel program that needs to be funded, and the critical aspect that the Air Force holds so much of is the nuclear command and control. Those investments need to continue so that we have a strong nuclear deterrent in the event this thing continues to worsen. But when you think about it, does Putin really have the resources to get into a nuclear arms race on top of his ambitions in Ukraine? I think not. He's almost creating a situation that Reagan did for the Soviet Union back during the end of the Cold War, where we outspent them and it broke them. So I think we should watch him and keep our programs that we have funded on track. I appreciate that. Now, Sledge and Laser, what's Congress's reaction to this? It's hard to pursue an arms control agenda when your adversaries aren't interested. Yeah, it's sort of like negotiating against yourself, which is not a, not a good thing to do. You know, Reagan said back in 86 with Gorbachev, he said, we prefer no agreement than to bring home a bad agreement to the United States. Sledge and I were both on the floor uh, back in December. Uh, I think it was 22nd of December back in 2012, was it Sledge, uh, when they were working through New Start. Right now, what you're seeing is the same debate that we saw about getting into New Start back then. The... Everyone saw the quote from Secretary Blinken. I think it matters that we continue to act responsibly in this area. It is also something the rest of the world expects of us. I don't know what that means, except that what we're going to, it sounds like we're going to adhere to a treaty that the Russians are not. They haven't adhered to treaties. Even when we were negotiating New START, they weren't adhering to the INF treaty, and that came out afterwards. So what we're seeing is both with the Chinese increased nuclear threat and now Russia pulling out, you're seeing Republicans and particularly Wicker and Fisher had come out and talking about increased uh, nuclear modernization. So I, again, that's going to be the debate. I think you're going to see a bigger push for the triad and modernization and continue to keep the triad going, but it's going to open up a big debate. Yeah, I would agree with that. But first, I want to make a semantic uh, point. It's a very technical one here. Putin has suspended compliance with the treaty. He hasn't withdrawn from it completely. But I think we're mincing words there because really it means no inspections. And Russia has really been in material breach of the treaty for a while now. So I agree with General Gostella. A lot of that is uh, bloviating on the part of Vladimir Putin. But it's important to, to realize that. But I do think the, the fact that he's done that gives us a golden opportunity here in the United States. For And there's a couple of things I want to unpack here. The first is, as General Deptula mentioned, New START is a bilateral agreement. 
we no longer live in a bilateral nuclear security environment. So a, a new bilateral treatment, even though the new start expires in 2025, I don't think a new agreement is going to solve the fundamental problem. And I really can't wait to hear what Dan has to say about China, because I'm going to throw a couple of zingers out there. First of all, the one point of General Gostelis I take exception to is the outspending of the Russians. Putin's already modernized over 92% of his nuclear forces. I think he's almost there. He's close enough. So I, I don't envision an arms race here. I think they have the capabilities. They've got a modernized force. Recently, the commander of U.S. Strategic Command said that the Chinese have been not modernizing their nuclear arsenal at a breathtaking pace. So we have to include them in some type of agreement going into the future. But the, here's the golden opportunity that we had. And Laser mentioned this. When, when the Senate approved the New START agreement of, back in 2012, it was predicated on the promise that the Obama administration would modernize the nuclear triad. I think the current security environment gives us more than sufficient justification to upgrade all three of those legs of the triad and the NC3 that General Gustella mentioned. Because anything that we do going forward, whether it be direct negotiations or are just operating in international space, we have to do from a position of strength. And having a credible, capable nuclear deterrent, which has been the foundation of our national security for the last 70 years, is an absolute imperative. So, Dan, how does China fit in the mix? Sledge teed you up here. We've heard a lot about the their aggressive nuclear weapons breakout. What's your view? Uh, yeah, and Sledge definitely teed it up. So, my view, I think everybody said some things that are like ex exactly what I would take away from it. Give some teeth to the argument here. China is planning on having about 1,500 nuclear warheads by 2035. For them, that is a massive buildup, even though it is still below what the U.S. or Russia might have. And that should cause serious concern. We've seen them building silos out in the West, a couple hundred of those, and they're not beholden to any sort of arms control agreements, even like New START. So for them, this whole suspension of the agreement gives them the green light to go ahead and build up their own stockpile and use it for what they, how they see fit. And just to be clear, they do see it much like us as the bedrock of their national security. From the U.S. perspective, now we're facing a China that's got a green light to build up their stockpile, a Russia that's backing out of the agreement. I absolutely agree. Right now is the time we do need to modernize our own nuclear triad, make sure that it is ready because we're not facing one threat, we're facing two. So that's really just my take on it. And I'm sure China's sitting in back in Beijing saying like, wow, can't believe this happened. Let's move ahead. I appreciate that. Okay. Last question. We're tight on time. So we'll do a little lightning round here. Now this one's been covered to death a bit, but it's important to cap off where we are big picture. The Chinese surveillance balloon. Was this media hysteria that's going to pass, or do you think that it prompted a meaningful conversation about homeland defense? And General Gostella, let's start with you and then work around the table. Well, you know what? I sure hope it prompts a conversation about our the homeland defense. Several NORAD NORTHCOM commanders, the combatant commanders in charge of protection of the U.S. and Canada combined, have, have said for many years that they need funding and support to ensure the number one priority, which is defense of the homeland, is being executed. And sure enough, we have China fly balloons over our country we didn't see or saw too late and late to action. So that's a wake-up call that they're going to come at us in any through any vector, through any vulnerability 
ability that we have. This just happens to be one of them. So it's imperative that we don't just forget about this incident and that we invest in the homeland defense, which is a lot of that is air and missile defense, cruise missile defense, UAS, unmanned aerial systems defense, so that we can ensure that we are safe back here in the homeland. John Deptilla? Yeah, well, I agree with Gus. This was a wake-up call that we need to adequately modernize NORTHCOM and NORAD, who are responsible for the air and missile defense in the United States. Now, and it is also, this next one is got to be an absolute must-do. Because the first thing to do in modernizing NORTHCOM and NORAD is for the Air Force to reverse its plan to retire 33 training-coded Block 20 F-22s and use them for air defense. They could also be used as trainers, saving wear and tear on the Block 30s, and they could also provide a needed attrition reserve force that the Air Force is going to need in future conflict. So that's an immediate one that comes to mind. And I certainly hope the Air Force comes to its senses and does not retire those 33 fifth-generation aircraft. And Doug Laser, I just real quick agree, wake-up call, maybe not quite a Sputnik moment, but what it did, and I've seen it on the Hill, is typically when you have NORTHCOM come up and you have the hearing, the focus, missile defense, hypersonics, but they're really going to be looking at what our capabilities are, how modern are our systems, what do we have to put into funding to defeat threats that we haven't been looking at, as well as missile defense and hypersonic threats. The only thing I would add to this, I would have liked to have been a fly on the wall in the White House Situation Room when this conversation was going down. And I can imagine it went something like this. The president goes to Secretary Austin and says, are you kidding me? An F-22 with an AIM-9X is the only option that I have to take this balloon down. So I think we need to look at what our options are to actually uh, accomplish the mission. That's a great point. Dan, finish this up. Yeah, sure. Sledge, that is a great point, because at one point, Canada tried to shoot down a balloon like this, and it took over a thousand rounds of ammunition out of their CF-18s without actually bringing it down. So we do need options. So I'd like to take a little different tact on this, but I think this speaks to a larger problem that we are going to face in the near term, and that is the proliferation of China's C4 ISR constellations, both in near space as well as in LEO. So there's been reporting out on a new satellite constellation in LEO. China's planning 13,000 satellites. They're trying to take up space and beat us to being able to proliferate our own constellations. So while this balloon does represent a very visible image of China floating over our airspace, can you imagine what a conflict might look like where the entire airspace is crowded out by these types of objects in the Indo-Pacific. And I've seen some Chinese reporting on this. This is not a one-off balloon floating over collecting SIGINT. It's more of a networked approach to it, a multi-domain proliferated approach in which near space, things like this high altitude balloon, as well as a satellite constellation, ground-based systems, they all network together to try to get information dominance in the conflict. So I haven't seen a lot of people talking about that specific aspect of it in terms of the potential for command and control within the theater. But I think that's something we really need to pay attention to. And not only how do we get after that problem for the Homeland Defense mission, but also how do we approach that kind of problem if there is conflict in the Indo-Pacific?
No, I really appreciate that. Okay, thanks to everybody for their time today. It's all we've got time-wise. So General Deptula, General Guastella, Laser Sledge, and Dan, it's been awesome catching up. Yeah, you bet. Thanks. We'll talk to you later and have a great aerospace power kind of day. Thank you, gentlemen. Have a great day, everyone. Glad to be here. And with that, I'd like to extend a big thank you to our guests for joining in today's discussion. I'd also like to extend a thank you to our listeners for your continued support and for tuning in to today's show. And if you like what you've heard today, don't forget to hit that like button and follow or subscribe to Aerospace Advantage. You can also leave a comment to let us know what you think about our show or areas that you think we should explore further. And as always, you can join the conversation by following the Mitchell Institute on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn. And you can always find us at mitchellaerospacepower.org. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you next time.